Okay, well here we go. So this Torah portion is called Naso, and it means uh, take the sum or take the chief. And if you, oh, that was the temple, by the way, that was up there. Um, the first few words of this particular Torah portion are take the sum, and then it goes on of the people or of the princes. And so that's where they got the name of this. It's Nasagam it which is the Aleph Tav, Rosh Bain. It means lift, gather, and then there's that Aleph Tav, like the fingerprint of God and sun. So it's kind of an interesting deal. And those are the uh, Torah portion, the Haftorah, and the New Testament. And it's interesting that one in Judges, if you didn't read it, is uh, about Samson from his mother's perspective about how the angel of the Lord came to her because she'd been barren and said, you're going to have a child and this is what I want you to do and we're going to use him as a judge. So he needs to be a Nazarite and all this stuff. Well, it turns out that was Samson, if you read further down. And then the section in the New Testament is the account of John, John the Baptist. And he, of course, was a Nazarite. And that's uh, all connected because this section in Numbers includes the uh, discussion of the Nazarites and all of that. So if you remember from last week, we know that the, what we know as the book of Numbers is actually called Bidmar, and it's the Hebrew word meaning desert and to speak. So they were in the desert, and that was the picture of the tabernacle again that just went flying by. You've all seen pictures of the ark, it's the big gold box with the cherubim on it, and it has the, the two long staves so that four guys can carry it. Do you know anything wrong with that picture? Because <laughs> that thing you sent me today, you know, the whatever it was, the Bible, what was it? Bible Project. It's this cool thing about these two guys Put, put together a quick, like this was six minutes on the book of Numbers. And the first thing they said is, well, it's not really the book of Numbers, but it's just a little video presentation of the things that happened in that book. And in this one, and you'll see this all the time, you see the four guys hauling the ark. You know, the gold thing with the wings and whatnot. You'll never see that because the ark is covered exactly. And it's most people will never see, have to be a priest in order to ever see it. So all these pictures that we get in our flannel graph and in that thing, and you know, like this and whatnot, it shows what we think it looks like. And then you see them marching with it in front of battle and stuff, and that never happened because nobody can look on it and live. Bidmar is, is, is Yahweh speaking to his children in the desert because the uh, Midbar means desert and it means speak. So that, you know, and we're talking about the temple and all the stuff that you see in the picture there and it's kind of cool. So the, <clears throat> the purpose of the uh, extended stay in the desert, it was about an eight day walk, but because the bet is the house, uh, and then the word uh, midbar is to speak and desert. So it's 
sort of God's house in the desert. So he wants to speak to us or to the people. And instead he had more to say than in eight days. So it took some 38 years to get that across to the people. So, and we talked a little bit last week about how when the camp is laid out in the desert, it forms a giant cross. So when, for instance, Balaam was up above uh, cursing the people, which we'll get to later in uh, Midbar, he would be looking on a huge cross with God right in the center of it. We talked last week about the way the camps lay out. Each camp has a big ensign and the pictures on those flags, the lion, the calf, the eagle, and the face of the man are the exact same that you read in uh, Revelation about the throne room of God. So when the Lord, when Moses went up to the mountain and the Lord talked to him, took him, show him whatever, he was showing him the throne room of the Lord. And he said, this is what I want you to build. So he was copying this picture of the throne room of the Lord that we see both in the desert. We see it uh, certainly in Israel for hundreds of years. And we'll see it again in the book of Revelation because that's, and I'm guessing we may be camped the same way. We talked a little bit about uh, from this picture you see where the Lord actually is. He's, of course, where the smoke and the light and fire back in the Holy of the Holies. And that section of the camp, remember, is at the very back corner. And that's in the, in the property, if you will, of Benjamin. Then the menorah is the picture of the word, the light unto your path. And it's in the front. So it's sort of in the camp of Judah. So in order for those two to come together, the only place they could be is between the two, which would put them right in the middle of the temple. And that's the picture Paul shared in Romans 11, Ezekiel 37, Malachi chapter 4, Hosea, and a bunch of other places. Always have the same picture of bringing these two things together. So as we get into this section, hopefully uh, we'll see, because these are supposedly all what we would call Jews. Those are the people in the desert. There were certainly a lot of people that were not Jews with them because the people that came out of Egypt were called a mixed multitude. But with the Jews. And for us, we're not Jewish. So that presents a bit of a problem. And in this particular section of Midbar, it sort of explains that if we're open to what he's saying and how we as Gentiles become part of all that is God's. Um, and I would suggest that we like to study Revelation and hear all this cool prophecy stuff and uh, do all the things that 21st century American Christians do. But it's all, it's all laid out here first. And it was laid out before here and after here. And sometimes I think it's more exciting to have to find it than it is to just read it. Because you read it in the New Testament and it's, it sort of lays it out plain and simple because they already knew it. But we didn't... We don't have the benefit of knowing all that stuff. <clears throat> so, Bidmar 3, 12, and 13 goes like this. 
And behold, I have taken the Levites from among the children of Israel instead of all the firstborn that openeth the matrix among the children of Israel. Therefore, the Levites shall be mine because all the firstborn are mine. For on that day that I smote all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, I hallowed unto me all the firstborn in Israel, both man and beast, mine they shall be. I am the Lord. So as you read scripture, you reasonably quickly come to this picture of the firstborn because we we had Abel and Cain, Cain and Abel. There's always an account that talks about the firstborn and the firstborn has different rights and responsibilities and he gets a double portion of the father's stuff and all that. So there's a fairly complete picture of what a firstborn is in scripture. And it lays all this out and you expect the people to follow it. And yet most of the people that we read about in scripture the firstborn loses the birthright. So it seems almost a little weird that they put such a big emphasis on the firstborn when most of the firstborn you read about don't rise to the occasion. So that hopefully causes you to stop and think about what are, what's the point of the firstborn? Because you look at Cain and Abel, Cain was the firstborn, lost out to Abel and then killed Abel. So then it went to Seth. You look at Ishmael, he lost it to Isaac. You look at Esau, he lost it to Jacob. We'll look at Reuben, who was firstborn and he lost it. You know who he lost it to? You keep reading ahead. <laughs> yes, well, it's, 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 it's Reuben, Simeon, Judah. There's the, the list of the 12. And you would think, because the firstborn loses the birthright, that it goes to the secondborn. Well, the secondborn also lost it. And, but the thirdborn was Judah. So you would think, okay, well, it could stop there, but it doesn't. So um, um, yeah, let me read that in just a minute. But anyway, the firstborn is supposed to be dedicated to the Lord, but that didn't seem to work out because the firstborns often were not worthy of the title. So the Lord says in that verse, look, here's what I'm going to do because you giant losers can't seem to work this out. I'm going to take the Levites and I'm going to make them as the firstborn. They're going to be my people. So you don't need to worry about the firstborn thing. So Levi was going to act as his firstborn. And traditionally, the reason he picked Levi is because the tribe of Levi allegedly did not get sucked into the whole golden calf thing. They were, uh, and, and again, this is something you don't necessarily pick up quickly, but not all of the people were dancing around the golden calf. There were a good number of people who weren't. And if you remember when Moses came down, his action was to grind up the golden calf into dust, mix it with water, make everybody drink it. And then from there, the people who were involved in the whole golden calf thing, their bellies would miraculously swell so that uh, Moses knew who the, the perpetrators or the instigators were, and they were eliminated. 
And you're thinking, well, that's, you know, that's, come on, that's just another one of those Bible stories, right? It doesn't really happen like that. But there's a couple things you should notice is the first thing that it doesn't come right out and say, but it should be fairly obvious is that not all the people were involved in that. There were apparently a relatively small number of people that were involved in that, and they had to be eliminated. And Moses needed to find out who the instigators of that group were. Well, the Levites were not. They were apparently distancing themselves from the whole deal. So when God needed to replace the firstborn that he smote, which is a whole nother story, because we tend to think that most of the Jews in Egypt uh, came out of Egypt. And apparently that's not necessarily true, or certainly not all of them did. Some of them lost their firstborn and remained in Egypt. Some of the Egyptians came with the Israelites and saved their firstborn. So there's a, a mix in both directions. But anyway, he picks the Levites, and, and Levi, who lived to be 137 years old, only has three sons, apparently, or three sons that are recorded. Gershon, the firstborn, and he was, uh, remember, the they laid out in a cross, and to the east is always where you want to be, where the sun comes up. That's where Moses and Aaron would face. So you had the temple in the middle, and then around it were the three sons of Levi, and the east side was reserved for Moses and Aaron, and the sons of Aaron. So Gershon, the firstborn of Levi, you would expect to be at the right hand of Moses and Aaron, but he, which would have been the south, I think. But he wasn't. He was put on the west, and he was assigned to carry all the fabrics and stuff. Koath, the secondborn, was given the honor of being on Moses' right-hand side, which would have been the south, and he got to carry, or his children got to carry, all the furnishings, the cool stuff. You know, they were the cool kids in class, right? They got to tote the big cherubim and all of the, the menorah and all this stuff, and that's the good stuff. You would presumably want to be associated with that. And then the third son, uh, Merari, uh, camped to the north and carried the wood sockets and heavy stuff. So the question then would be, well, why is the firstborn son not given the place at the right hand of Moses? And why does he have to tote all the cloth stuff? He doesn't get to tote the gold and the silver sockets, and he doesn't carry the boards, and he doesn't get to carry the furniture and all the cool stuff. He carries the cloth which is a huge deal. I mean, it's exceedingly heavy and there's tons of, literally tons of it. And it just, it just strikes you as odd. So, and then that no reason is given. It doesn't say they did anything wrong or traditionally they, it's just the way God laid it out. Yeah, you know, it seemed to have, it would seem to have no particular purpose and it doesn't really fit the firstborn. But of course, you know, one of the lessons would be, and we'll get to that, is that it's not important. It doesn't matter. The, the, the important thing is, will you do what the Lord asks you to do and will you do it to the best of your ability? And he doesn't seem to care if you're the guy carrying the cool stuff or if you're the guy carrying, 
you know, it's it's not the bad stuff, but it's not the fun stuff. There's no, you're not the guys people throw the parades for when you're walking into town. You know, that's the guy carrying the, the cherubim and the menorah and all that stuff. You're just the guy toting the stuff. But without the stuff, there would be no place to put all the cool stuff. So you have to have the sons come and put up the wood first, put up the sockets, put up the fabric to make the tent before you can even bring the other stuff in. So it's all important stuff, but I think God's idea here is it doesn't matter. They're not getting to do one or the other. It doesn't matter to me as long as it's all done. And one is no more or less important than the other. And that's perhaps something that we should, uh, you know, we should all keep in mind because I think most people tend to think, oh, I could do that better or, I, you know, whatever. Well, just do what you're supposed to do as well as you can do it and when you're supposed to do it. And that's what the Lord would ask. You see all these, you know, Greg Laurie and Billy Graham and all these guys doing all this stuff and hundreds of thousands of people and you think, oh, that would be awesome. But their reward is no greater than your reward if you're doing exactly what he's asked you to do and they're doing exactly what he's asked them to do. It's even Stephen, right, in, in God's world. So if you're somebody like Greg Laurie or Billy Graham, there is a huge burden on you, I would think, to do those things and to do them well and to do them right and to do them on time. And if it's somebody like me, it's not that big a burden. <laughs> do one, one thing a week for, you know, half a dozen people or a dozen people. And if it's the rescue mission or the old folks home or whatever it is, it's all the same in God's eyes. He doesn't really care. He just wants you to do what he's asked you to do well. So do what you need to do to make sure you can do his job well. And that's in essence... I think what was going on here. So Cain, Abel, Esau, Isaac, I mean, Esau, Jacob, Ishmael, Isaac, Reuben should have been Simeon. First Chronicles five says this. Now the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but for so as much as he defiled his father's bed, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, and the genealogy is not to be reckoned after the birthright. For Judah prevailed above his brethren, and of him came the chief ruler, but the birthright was Joseph's. Well, that doesn't even make sense. It's as though the Lord lays all this stuff out and then changes the rules. It doesn't matter. And this is one of those things that you should stop and say, well, there's more to this story because it should have been Simeon, but Simeon was a screw up. I get that. Then it could have gone to Judah. Well, Judah's not a screw up. He's the guy. I mean, Judah is, is half the scripture. So why didn't it go to him? But it didn't. It went down to the grandsons. So if you look into why that is, why do you think that is? Pardon me? Okay, it is a heart issue. That's true. Faith. Fa okay, faith. So none of the 12 sons had faith. 
or had a heart? <laughs> Maybe. Kind of like David. Yeah. God saw the heart. Right. And David was like seventh down the line. Yep. But the 12 are known as the fathers of Israel, right? The 12 tribes, there's 12 gates, there's 12 stones, there's Anytime you account for the Jewish people, there are 12 of them. And granted, there's 14 of them. So you shuffle the deck, and you, but you always do 12. It's Israel, though. Those are all Jewish people. David was Jewish. He needs a way to bring the non-Jews into the party. You see, in the Passover, there was Elijah the Tishbite. You see in the in the... 12 spies, which is a, probably a bad term. Caleb was not Jewish. There's always a Gentile in the woodpile somewhere. But we're talking now about, the, about God's throne room. This is the throne room that he had from before the beginning of time that I would suspect he took Moses to and showed him. Because he said, everything you saw, I want you to do it exactly that way in the desert. So he came down and he built exactly what he saw. The ensigns were the same. I'm guessing the way the people uh, were surrounding it were the same. It's the same thing we see in Revelation. Because this is a picture, the beginning is the picture of the end. That's Isaiah 46.10. It's always the same. So at some point, he needs to integrate the Gentiles, those who are not Jewish, because there was none of the 12, obviously, were born, were not Jewish. How do you get the Gentiles into the woodpile? Joseph was a Jew, right? But the Lord took him to Egypt. Well, Egypt is Gentiles. And in Egypt, he was given a wife. So through that wife, he had these two children, Ephraim and Manasseh, who were raised by Joseph, but they were Gentiles because their mother was a Gentile. And to this day, if you check the genealogy of a Jew, they don't do it through the father. They do it through the mother. And that's how they got around the whole thing with Mary because the, gen the genealogy includes Mary. Well, they never did that. But that's how you prove your lineage is through the mother, not through the father. So these two children are Gentiles. So this birthright thing skips down through all 12 of the Jews until you get to a couple of Gentiles. So this tribe of Ephraim and Manasseh, which can be one tribe or it can be two, depending on how many they need, they can split it, um, is they are the children of Joseph. Well, Joseph's a Jew. And if you remember when Jacob was pronouncing, uh, he was prophesying his children, gave all his children a prophecy. When he gets to the two grandchildren, Remember, he crosses his hands, puts his right hand on the young one, his left hand on the old one. Jacob or Joseph says, no, 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 you're wrong. He says, yeah, I've got this. I know what I'm doing. And his prophecy was, let your name be my name. Well, what was his name? 
Israel. So these two become Israel. So there's your Gentile tie-in. So if this whole picture in, in Midbar is about God's throne room from before the beginning of time, during the whole uh, exercise of Israel and in Revelation at the end of time, if it's the same picture of the same place, you have to have a Jew and a Gentile because you've got the two witnesses. If it's Elijah and Moses, it's a Jew and a Gentile. If it's, it's the law and the prophets, it's uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's always the two same things. It's the Jew and the Gentile. So you've always got to have, I'm suggesting you always have to have a picture of the Gentile when you're talking about end times salvation, basically. And that's what this is, is he's talking about his firstborn. There is no firstborn Gentile because they're all Jews. He has to bring them in. How does he do that? By moving Joseph from Israel to Egypt, by bringing him to be the second in command by having him marry a Gentile, by having two children that Jacob never thought he would ever see, having Jacob bless him. And the blessing is your name shall be named my name, which is Israel. So that's us, I would suggest. So anyway, the Bible spends... Um, uh, a good amount of time, probably most of its time, explaining, or I shouldn't say explaining. When, when we look at the Bible, or when, when non-believers maybe, or nominal believers look at the Bible, they sort of think that the Bible is there to convince the tares to become the wheat. To take the people that don't know the word and convince them to know the word, to come to the Lord. But that's not really true. The majority of scripture is written to the wheat, admonishing them not to become the tares. Because the whole purpose of being wheat, of being sanctified, of being set apart, of being God's people, of being the firstborn, is so that you can live in a way that's separate from the world and the world will see that and choose, hopefully will choose you, will choose your God, which is exactly what happened with Ruth, which is exactly what happened with Rivka. You see that picture over and over and over again. So when we're in the book of Midbar, what we call numbers, and we think we're reading a bunch of boring names and numbers and who really cares about any of that stuff, what you're actually getting is the entire story of salvation, of how the Lord is using his people to bring the tares, if you will, into becoming the wheat. He's not, but to do that, the wheat have to stop acting like the tares. So we have to be separate, sanctified, different. So he goes through all these hoops to make sure we act that way and think that way and do those things. And then he brings in the Gentiles and he goes through this. I mean, it seems ludicrous. He goes through all 12 of the fathers of the nation and that 12 
goes from the beginning of Israel all the way through the end, all the way into heaven or the new Jerusalem, you see the 12. There's always the 12 gates, the 12 tribes. There's the 12 stones, all of this stuff. But he has to bring the Gentiles in and he does it. He works it out in an amazing way. So we, we've been looking at all these uh, layers of separation. And again, this all starts in the very beginning. He creates the world, the universe, there's the world. And then he takes the world and separates a part of that out and calls it Eden. And then he takes Eden and separates part of that out and calls it the midst of Eden. Then he takes the midst of Eden and separates that out one more time for the tree of life. And that's a picture that's going to be followed all the way through scripture. In the desert, you see the same thing. There's the world. He separates out his people, Israel. He separates it again into the priests. Then he separates the priests into the high priest. So it's always this separation. He separates the actual desert into the, the fenced area we saw. Then it separates that again into the holy place, separates that again into the holy of holies. There's always this separation that occurs. We have to want to be separate. <laughs> We don't want to be like the world. We need to be on the other side of that fence. So how do we do that? And that's basically what, well, that's what scripture is about. But that's what's laid out in the book of uh, Midbar. You know, I asked last week if you would be content just living outside the gate, you know, near the temple, or if you want to be in the courtyard, or would you be rather be in the holy place? Or would you want to be in the holy of the holy places? Do you want to be, how do you want to spend your eternity? It's basically the question he's asking. Where do you want to spend it? Do you want to be outside in the gate? I mean, outside of the whole, do you want to be part of the world? Probably not. You want to be part of the people of God. Okay, good. Well, if you're part of the people of God, are you content with that? Or do you want to be inside the courtyard or inside the holy place? How far do you want to go? And I think to some degree, we can choose that, but it's all, it's, it, it's another layer of separation. Are you willing to, do you want to separate yourself away? And if you even want to be in the courtyard, you have to be separate from the world. Well, are you, <laughs> you know, that's not a question I can answer. I could barely answer it for me. But know that the world will do everything it can do to make sure you are not separate. Everything the Lord lays out, everything he, he requires and he says is important, the world will try to tell you it's not important. I mean, how ludicrous is it that it seems like a good idea to kill your babies in the womb? I mean, that's just a crazy idea. And yet the world has convinced you that that's true. And everything that the scripture says that would separate us from the world, the world says, oh, no, 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 you know, you're, you're racist or you're a bigot or you're whatever, a homophobe, if you think those things. And we tend to back off and go, oh, yeah, yeah, well, I don't want to be called that. You do want to be called that. You want the world to see that you're different. You want to be inside that courtyard. You want to be camped with the people of God. You want to look different to the guy on the hill. And when we get to this in, in, you know, it's down the road, you will see that 
Balaam was hired to curse those people on the desert floor that were camping in a cross with God at the center of them, and he could not. He would open his mouth to curse them and blessings would come out because that's how the God, that our God works. He's got a plan, but we need to embrace it. Okay. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It said it's literally changing your physical being. Probably does. That's a great example of the world. You don't want to be that way. Yeah, it's interesting. Okay, so keep these things in mind. God desires for us to dwell with him in his house. That was his, his deal from the very beginning, from the very first letter of scripture, his house. He's the head of the house, according to the first word. You know, we went through all that stuff. He And the house is a place for the family, for the kids to live. It's safe from the outside world. That's his deal. He wants us to live in his house. So to the extent that he separated his people out and continues to separate them, every time we get too involved in the world, he allows an event to happen that separates his people, you know, we, we can, we've said this before, World War II and the Holocaust probably had more to do with God separating his people again because the, his people, the Jews, were getting so complacent they had assimilated with the world. Well, 400 years previous to that was the same thing. They, they had to go through, I can't remember the name of the law now, but all the Jews were thrown out of Europe. You either had to give them all your property, convert to Catholicism, or die. Every now and again, because we tend to want to assimilate with the world and not rock the boat, and he says, no, don't. I don't want you. You, you have to be separate. And if you don't want to do it, He'll allow it to happen. And I kind of see that happening with us now. We are on that road to almost forced assimilation. If we don't agree with the things of the world, then we are, you know, certainly called names and mistreated and all that stuff. But the time will come when we won't be able to get a job. You won't be able to be paid. You want there all these things will be unavailable to you unless you assimilate with them. And the Lord says, "No. I do not want my people to assimilate that way." So we looked uh at the firstborn. This idea of the firstborn goes through scripture from almost beginning to end, a, a, Abel and Cain, Cain and Abel. Uh, all the way to the end, Jesus came and is called repeatedly his firstborn. And it's not necessarily because he was born first. It's because he he had the heart of the father. So the firstborn, when he, and that's why he lays out all these instructions and statutes and judgments and rules about the firstborn. It's not so that the person dropped by the woman first gets all that 
but it's so that you know the person whose heart is for the Lord gets all that stuff. And it doesn't necessarily have to be the firstborn. And in fact, it's usually not the firstborn. It's, it's somebody down the road that has a heart for the Lord. And then he becomes the firstborn to the Lord. Okay, so anyway, Naso goes on and it talks about um, casting those out of the camp that are, it, it uh, typically the scripture will give you a picture of a physical reality and it could very well be a physical thing, but there's often a, a spiritual picture. So when we see lepers are cast out, don't think they're cast out because they had a contagious disease. Think they were cast out because they were spiritually diseased. He says, you can't be a priest because you're a dwarf. Well, it's probably not because you're short. It's because you're a spiritual dwarf and things like that. So when you read through all this allegedly boring stuff in the book of Numbers, realize he's speaking to us in the wilderness and they're not necessarily what we're reading. There's a deeper picture in all this stuff. So if you remember Mary, uh, Miriam, Moses' sister, she, in, and we'll get to that in a few chapters, I'm sure, she starts this little rebellion by bad-mouthing her brother Moses. And what happens to her? She's, she becomes a leper and is cast out of the camp like lepers are supposed to be. But if she was a leper, number one, you wouldn't just get leprosy. And number two, she was allowed back in after seven days because she confessed and repented and was forgiven. So obviously it wasn't a physical issue. It was a spiritual issue. Um, but also note that it, this spiritual issue was either brought on by or her language was a result of, you know, it's because she was speaking poorly of God's anointed and you can't do that. But think back a few weeks ago when we talked about the people have a responsibility to hold the priests accountable and the priests have a responsibility to perform their job for the people. So there is something of a symbiotic relationship. If the priest is going off the rails, you're not just supposed to blindly follow him. You're supposed to correct him. And if the people are going off the rails, the priest is supposed to correct them. It works both ways. So apparently Miriam, and we will read later Korah, uh, Moses was not going off the rails. He was God's anointed, doing exactly what God wanted him to do. These people came up against him, and there was a price to be paid. In the case of Korah, he was killed. And in the case of Miriam, she uh, repented of her language and thoughts and was uh, brought back into the camp. Okay. One of the other sections in Naso that you'll read about is uh, that you'll read about and you should think to yourself, like with everything in scripture, there's more to this. You read about a robbery. You can't take, the priest can't take stuff that, even though 
you're going to give it to them. They can't take it until you give it to them. But once you give it to them, then it's theirs to do what they want. And there's, there's sections on that that are, I think you can figure all those out on your own. Then we get to a section called the ordeal of jealousy. And this is one of those sections that if, if you've been a Christian and you've read numbers and actually made it down this far, this is one of these things you're just going to roll your eyes at. Because this is the ordeal of jealousy. You think your wife is having an affair, so this is what you do. And it goes through this litany of just ridiculous sounding stuff that has to happen. And ultimately what happens is you accuse your wife of this. They go to the temple. The priest, of course, has no way to know. So this is the only thing in scripture that is ever decided miraculously. So you mix up this concoction of water from the golden laver, dust from the temple floor. Oh, and you write the sin on a, on a parchment and then you put the parchment in the water so that the ink come and you have to put the name of Yahweh on it. So then, so the ink comes off into the water. So you've got dust, ink and water from the laver. The woman drinks it. And if she's guilty, her stomach swells, her thigh collapses and she dies. If she's not guilty, nothing happens and she's presumed to be innocent and everything's good. And you read that and go, come on, how am I supposed to take this seriously? <laughs> well, how are you supposed to take that seriously? I mean, that is such a ludicrous story, but it's the same story, more or less, Moses did when he came down from the mountain, crushed up the gold, mixed it with the water, made him drink it. The guilty parties, their stomach bloated and they died. The innocent parties, they were fine. And how do you, how do you, how do you look at that stuff and go, how am I supposed to take this seriously? Because non-Christians look at that. And I mean, even Christians look at that and go, that's nuts. Well, naturally, there's more to the story. So first of all, the, the, legitim, the logistics of the thing the bronze laver, right? Bronze, it's a big bronze pot, which was shown on the little thing. And it's full of water and it's for all the offerings and you wash your hands, the priests wash the hands and all that stuff. Where did they get the bronze? Does anybody know? How did you get the bronze for the laver in the temple? You all know this. Yeah, but where did, where did they get it? They didn't mine it. They didn't go to the store and buy it. The people, the people brought their gold and silver and bronze and red and scarlet and all that stuff. And it was that that the temple was made of. Okay, so where, where did all these people get bronze? Women, because there was no glass, women had, the mirrors were bronze. You would polish a piece of bronze and you can polish a piece of bronze to a high enough polish. It makes a pretty darn good mirror. Okay, what's the purpose of a mirror for a woman? Exactly. So all the women, or I don't know if it was all, but enough women in the tribe of Israel, as they came out of Egypt, were confronted with a need to build a temple so that God could dwell with them, decided, because vanity is a bad thing, that they were going to give their bronze mirrors so that the temple could use them. So the bronze mirrors were collected, melted down, and they formed the laver. So when you've got a bronze laver that's full of water, it's 
mirrors of vanity, right, that were traded in and, and melted down. So think about a vain woman. She's the woman that would do this whole adultery thing. Because if you're that vain, you would put the things of the Lord aside and you could conceivably be tempted into that. So you've got this labor full of water that's a picture of the vain woman. Then you've got the dust on the floor of the temple that you mix in. It's like, well, what's up with that? And then the ink on the thing that says Yahweh and you mix it up with that. So you've got Yahweh floating in the waters of vanity and you take the dust of the temple and the woman drinks it. Well, you've got God in the temple and bronze, which is judgment. What's the story with us? It's the same sort of thing. If we're going to be the bride of Messiah, we can't be vain for we'd have to be devoted to him. And we are supposed to be the bride of Messiah. So when they're talking about this adulterous woman, and there were adulterous women, and this was actually used, and this did work, but they were talking about something totally different. They're talking about us. We are the bride of Messiah. So then you've got to figure out what's all this weird stuff about the dust and the name of Yahweh and all of that. And it's all in here. Um, Revelation 17, this is a long way around the barn, 17, one through five says, and there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials and talked with me saying, come hither and I will show thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters with whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication and the inhabitants of the earth have made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit of the wilderness and I in, into the wilderness and I saw a woman sit upon scarlet colored beasts full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a gold cup in her hand full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornications. And upon her head was the name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, Mother of Harlots, Abomination of the Earth. So this, I would suggest to you, is that adulterous harlot. And if you see the gold and the scarlet and the, all of that stuff, and where is she? Carrying the spirit into the wilderness. So I would uh, tie all that together. The, Right, right. <laughs> Still is, as far as I know. Um, yeah, it's interesting. And, and I didn't mention that this, this uh, wapatui that they were making up with the water and the dust and the ink is put into what? An earthen vessel. And we're referred to as an earthen vessel often. Did you know why? What's the deal with an earthen vessel? <laughs> An earthen vessel absorbs stuff. So if you put putrid stuff in an earthen vessel, the vessel becomes putrid. 
If you put holy stuff in an earthen vessel, the earthen vessel becomes holy. So all of this stuff with the adulterous woman, the vanity of the, the water of the vanity, the dust of the temple and the name of Yahweh are put into an earthen vessel, which could be considered as we see the harlot and all that stuff. Um, let's just skip ahead a little bit here. Go to John eight, verse four through 12. And they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what saith you? This he said, tempting him that he might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote in the ground as though he heard him not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted himself up and said unto them, He that was out with, is without sin among you, let him cast the first stone at her. And again he stooped down and he wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest and even to the last. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing in the midst. And Jesus had lifted himself up and saw none but the woman. And he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. And then spake Jesus unto them, saying, I am the light of the world. He, he that follow after me shall not walk in the darkness, but shall have the light of life. Where was he when he did that? He was in the temple. Because Jesus, and he was at the, at the ta Feast of Tabernacles, in fact, because of this thing, uh, the light of the world and all that stuff. That's when he said that. He was at the temple, writing in the dust. What was he writing? Well, their sins is what people were, would think. But why did he do that? Because that's what you did from the first day of the temple. You went into the temple on the dust of the floor of the temple and you wrote these things out. And so you would take that dust, mix it with the water, mix it with the, you know, the water of vanity, mix it with the name of the Lord and all that stuff. And that would... Presumably what would happen is you'd mix all this up. You would tell the woman, look, confess if you're guilty and then you won't die. You'll be divorced, but you won't die. But if you don't confess and you are guilty and you drink this, you're going to die. And most people would, would have confessed if they were guilty. If they weren't guilty, guilty, they would have been calm. Much like this woman that he's that we just discussed. They brought her as a prop in, claimed she was committing a, she knew she hadn't. She was in no danger of dying if, because she, the Lord was there judging, right? If she, that's the, the ordeal that they're talking about in the temple, it's at the same place with the same sort of thing. And it's always the same picture. So it, it uh, leads you to this concept of repentance Forgiveness, uh, well, it's confession, repentance, and forgiveness. So we all expect to be forgiven. We all expect to be like this woman that Jesus just wrote in the dust. We all expect to be forgiven. But in order to be forgiven, there has to be repentance. And in order for there to be repentance, there has to be a confession. So can you be redeemed 
without repenting? Probably not. Can you repent without confessing? Probably not. If you don't know the things of the Lord, what do you confess to? So you have to understand the judgments and statutes and instructions and certainly the intent of what the Lord would have for you. So he talks about firstborn. He talks about uh, the infidelity of, of the woman. He talks about, he's going to talk about the Nazarite vows. And I don't know that we have time to do that tonight. He talks about all these things. And my concern from 2019 in America is what are we confessing? How do we even know what to confess to? But you can't receive repentance. You can't give, you can't be repentant if you don't know what you're confessing for. And if you're not repentant, you can't be forgiven, which is this idea that, and I know this is kind of convoluted picture, but this is the idea with bringing the bride of the Messiah, bringing the woman who's convicted of adultery, you know, the, the man thinks is committing adultery. This whole picture revolves around confession, repentance, and basically salvation. It's got little to do with the actual woman that might or might not be at the temple that day. The bigger picture is us. We are the bride and we're definitely the adulterous bride. So how do we get from that point where we're going to drink this water and die to the part where we're forgiven because we all believe we're forgiven. But on what grounds have you repented? Well, sure. I, you know, I say, I'm sorry every week for the things that I do. Well, what is it you do? And how is that in conflict, conflict with the things of the Lord? Most people don't know. We don't know because we don't, we don't look, we don't read, we don't understand the laws of the firstborn, the laws of the Nazarite, the, 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 the laws of whatever they call this, the ordeals. None of these things, well, I shouldn't say that. They do serve a physical real purpose for a person living at that time, but that's never the goal. There's always a bigger picture with all these things. And we go through them and numbers is classic. You read this book, most people won't even read it because it's so boring. And it seems so irrelevant. And who cares about some stupid taking water and mixing ink and dust and then somebody's going to explode? I mean, that, that's crazy talk. Unless you look at the real picture. Because you are, we all are, that adulterous bride of the Messiah. And we need to put ourselves in a position at which we can be redeemed, which requires forgiveness, which requires confession, which requires that you know what you're confessing to. So when you read through this, you, the next thing you'll get to is the Nazarite vows. And the story of Samson, if you read it, it's in Judges. It, well, it's the half Torah section of this. If you read Judges, it doesn't even mention Samson. It mentions this woman who is barren. This, this angel of the Lord comes to her and says, you've been selected 
you're going to bear a son and this is what I want you to do. She talks to her husband. He goes, yeah, awesome. What do we do? The guy comes back again, speaks to her. I want you to raise him as a Nazarite. Okay, well, what does that mean? Well, Nazarite is, there's three things in the Nazarite vow. You don't cut your hair, you don't drink alcohol, and you don't touch a dead body. Okay, well, you come to find out this lady gave birth to this kid named Samson. So Samson was a Nazarite. He never cut his hair. He was not supposed to touch dead bodies. He was not supposed to drink. And the purpose of the Lord uh, in giving her this child was that he would be a judge over all of Israel. Well, as it turns out, he was not awesome. He did not obey his Nazarite. He wouldn't cut his hair, so he got that right. But he was, you know, killing people with a jawbone of an ass. Well, that's a dead animal. A Nazarite can't touch it. He was drinking wine and getting drunk with all the babes. Can't do any of that stuff. But the Lord continued to give him his strength. Until what? And then he lost his strength. And the whole, and again, you look at that and you go, oh my gosh, that's just, that's stupid. How does that make any sense? That's not real. I've cut my hair. I know I'm no weaker. It's got nothing to do with the hair. You're doing what the Lord asks you to do for one. And the hair is just a picture. And what is it a picture of? It separates you from the world, right? It separates the things that you think, the things that are in your head from the ideas of the world. Does it actually do that? No, it's a picture. Separate. If you want to and anyone can do a Nazarite vow. I think the minimum is 30 days. Some people are lifetime Nazarites. Typically, you'll take a vow, you'll know you've done something and you need repentance, forgiveness, and often you would take a Nazarite vow. And all that means is you would live your life like the high priest, the guy who's in the Holy of the Holies, the guy that you, the place you want to be at the end. So he's living like that for 30 days or whatever. And then after the 30 days, his hair is then cut off and thrown on the fire as an offering to God because it contains all the stuff of the world and, you know, we're going to burn it all or whatever. It's just a picture. It doesn't, the hair doesn't matter. The woman in adultery doesn't matter so much. It's a picture. The, the birthright thing, the firstborn doesn't really matter. It's a picture. You want to be the firstborn. You don't have to be the physical firstborn, but you want to be the firstborn of God. You want to be a Nazarite. You want to be separated out from the rest of the world. You don't want to be an adulterous bride. You don't want to have to drink the waters of vanity and, and, and the dust of the temple. But these pictures all repeat and repeat and repeat and repeat through scripture. And the only way you're going to know that is by reading scripture and looking into it. In Matthew 13, remember that the disciples came to him. He'd been speaking to the multitudes. Why do you always speak to them in multitudes? I mean, why do you always speak to them in parables? And he replies to them, to some it is given to know the mysteries of heaven and to some not so much. And to you it was given. Well, what was given? And I would suggest to you the thing was given was the Torah. They knew they knew these things. So all they had to do was choose to live that way or not. Most of us don't even know these things. So we don't even have the option of choosing or not. And again, I would just uh, go back to what I've said before. And I don't, 
I hope it's true. I don't know if it's true. I understand scripture to say a time is coming when, you know, the hearts of the fathers will return to children, the hearts of children return to the fathers. When the two branches of, you know, Ezekiel 37 are brought together, when the Jews and, the, and us, the Gentiles, come together. Uh, the olive tree, you've got the natural and the wild, they're grafted together. That time's coming. But the only way that's going to happen is for those people who are in the, on the stick of Israel, which is us, or the, the, the hearts of the children, which is us, who are maybe the children in Hosea, when he says, in that place I said, you're not my children, then I'll call you my children. All of those things, that time is coming. And if we're that stick and we want to be joined to the other stick, like Ruth, like Rivka, like Caleb, we need to know, don't we? So anyway, this, this ends with, um, and this again is one of the most boring parts of the book of Numbers that you'll never read. The 12 princes come to Moses, one from each tribe, and they make an offering for the new tabernacle. And it goes through 80 verses of this guy, and it gives you his name and his tribe's name and his father's name. And he gives, and it lists out all the things he gives. And then the next day, another prince comes, his name, father's name, tribe name, lists out all the things he gives. Well, it was exactly the same as the one above. And you read this 12 times, and it takes like 80 verses. And you're thinking, whoa, they couldn't have said these guys came and all dumped the same stuff? It would have saved a lot of verbiage. But that's not the point. These guys came to make offerings to the temple. Okay, awesome, great. I'm glad they did that. And the offerings were all the same. So that tells you a couple of things. One is they weren't trying to outdo one another. And you look at the churches today, they don't operate that way. This guy's got this and we do this and our donuts are better. And that's, you know, they're, oh my gosh. It's absolutely the opposite the complete opposite of this. And then it tells you, and this is, this is what the rabbis say. This isn't necessarily something you pull out of scripture, but the offerings are the same. I mean, in the, in this, you've got a, a silver tray that's 130 shekels of silver, and you've got a gold spoon that's 30 shekels of gold, and all of these things that are given, and it reads exactly the same. Well, you know they're not the same, when you look at humans, they're all the same, right? They've got two eyes, two arms, two legs. They're all the same. But when you look at them individually, they're not the same. There's, they're, none of us look like each other. They're all different. And the Lord might look at us as though we're his children. We're all the same. But he also looks at us individually and sees each one of us and our needs and our interests and our desires and everything. That's this. You read the book and every one of them brought a silver tray of 130 shekels. Do you suppose they all looked exactly the same? They were all different. And that's what the rabbis say is each of these offerings was important to the people that made them for different reasons. So we read it, the casual reader, the, the, the multitude that Jesus was speaking to, reads through this and gets nothing out of this other than why did they waste all my time repeating the same thing? 
But the Lord is looking at this going, each one of these people gave something important to them, to me. They built this their own selves. They, all the artwork would have been different. All of everything about it was important to the, each tribe for a different reason. And he gets that. We're not all the same in his mind, even though as a group, we're a group, but he sees it differently. So anyway, we're all equal in God's house. As long as we do what he asks us to do to the best of our ability to do it, which again, presupposes we know what he's asking us to do. How do you know? I suggest you have to understand the book. So anyway, that's it for this week. Maybe spend some time